I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile the troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. All right, good morning, Karen Rosenberg. Good morning. Welcome to the Good Counsel Podcast. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm excited to have you here. You and I have known each other professionally and personally for quite a while. I think we met at children's swimming lessons. They weren't my swimming lessons. They were the children's. My son, your daughter, same age. And I think when we were talking back then, I, I remember it pretty clearly you had recently gone into private practice at that time. I remember being very impressed with the clarity of your vision for it, what it was you were trying to do. It seemed that you were very focused. And it looks, by all appearances, that it all kind of worked out as as planned. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me here, Eric. This is awesome. And to be able to combine our personal relationship with a professional relationship is fabulous. And I, too, remember that 20 years ago, um, going to the swim lesson and having that conversation about my practice. And so far, so good. We'll keep it up and keep it going. Yeah, I've learned to swim without the floaties. I could <laughs> swim in the uh, the deep end of the pool and everything now. I'm even more proud of you then to hear that. That's it, awesome. A lot of personal triumphs over this period of time. I remember back to that that experience, and you and I actually have similar specialty. We do a lot of the the grief and loss work and refer back and forth to that. So I was hoping we could cover that a lot today. That's something I get asked a lot about, especially now. A really confounding issue for people, and you could talk about a lot of the different reasons why I often will tell people, like, look, if you think about the range of developmental experiences and all the things we're taught from the time that we're children, that at some point you're going to have a career, maybe you'll go to school, maybe you'll live in the country, maybe you'll live in the city, maybe you'll live in the suburbs, maybe you'll get married and have a family of your own, you're definitely going to pay taxes, all of those things. But you know what? There really isn't very much institutional structure around telling somebody that the people closest to you and you at some point are going to pass away. It's so true. I, I always say that birth is the leading cause of death. I read that in a in a comic, a BC comic, probably like 20-something years ago when I worked in hospice. And and I've used that as a framework. It's a cartoon. It's, it's funny, but it's true. We are finite beings. And that is really the case. The, I think like culturally, and especially in our culture, there really is that lack of preparation, that lack of conversation. And so you find that people's first experience in trying to manage the grief process or losing someone is when it actually happens. And that's a little bit of 
someone trying to learn how to swim while they're actually drowning, getting swimming lessons while you're drowning. Now you're learning about, okay, this is what happens when someone close to you passes away. And the shock of that experience and being able to distinguish what really is part of a normal grieving process for a feeling that for most people is very foreign is, I think, very confusing. And people are quick to go to, there must be something wrong with me that I'm experiencing these feelings in such an intense way. Absolutely. And and you're so right. Our culture is a death-denying culture. Most people, if they work for some type of a corporation, uh, they're lucky if they have two to three days of bereavement leave, and that's it. It's get right back to the job, get right back to work, and let's not think about what's actually going on. So um, for people that are growing up in, in that framework, whether it's at home or whether it's, it's, it's in a career situation, and not really facing what those things are when they're young – giving people the ABCs around grief, using experiences, teaching children when they're young that it's that it's a normal part of life. And there are these golden opportunities from the from the very, very beginning, even seeing like a little squished, you know, we live in Florida, there's all kinds of tropical little things all over the place, little squished critters on the ground talking about and teaching the language of grief early on, the language of death, using those terms early on so that it isn't something to fear or, or to understand that it's all part of what we're going through in our experience. There's really those golden opportunities that I think are missed because then what happens as people are adults and, and facing things that are normal parts of life, they are thinking, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? And that's what we're doing so often is their support people is just normalizing the experience for them. I like the term that you use, death-denying culture. I don't know that I've heard that before, but I certainly like it and I'll probably use it going forward. Go for it. I stole it from somebody else. You can have it. Even I look at like, what's the vernacular? What is the language that people in our culture tend to use around death and dying? So you look at probably the most popular one, Kubler-Ross's work in the 60s, 60 years ago, still don't really have like new language or new language that is popularly used in uh, the culture. So we're still, people are still referring to these five stages of grief. Interestingly enough, right, her research in the 60s was normed on these people who were terminally ill. So it's these people who were dying of uh, terminal illnesses and they were like in hospices. And so that's where she came up with her philosophy, her famous book on death, death and dying. And it's interesting because if you think about it, her research is normed on these people who are dying of terminal illness, yet the language of it is commonly used in grief work. So it's almost saying that the experience of losing a loved one the experience of losing like a family member or some person in your life that was very important to you is actually kind of the same as if you were dying of a terminal illness, that they're the same thing and that the same phases could be applied. And I found that really, you know, upon reflecting on that, I found that fascinating that that's kind of what we settled on. Right. It, it's 
there are certain pet peeves for those of us in the grief world. And that is definitely one of mine when, when, and, and it's, it's more just people don't know that there's so many other models, so many other theorists, so many other approaches to thinking about the grief and bereavement phases that people are experiencing. And you're spot on. Uh, I remember when I took my very first death and dying undergraduate class um, in in college, and we spoke a lot about that. And that was, gosh, we're getting old. That was a long time ago. That was in the 80s. And, and it felt even not as relevant then. And it's only been through my own work that I've done and opportunities who, who I've studied with and what I try to teach my clients and other professionals. And so when I hear it being used, say, on if I, if you're watching the news and they talk or t- you're hearing any random, you know, person talking about, oh, I must be in the stage of, um, of anger, you know, so I must be, I'm almost there. I'm almost to acceptance and then I'm over it. And, uh, so it's so much what we do, I think, is psychoeducation. Again, helping normalize that, helping educate them that there are other approaches and that it isn't this linear going through these five stages of grief and uh, because that isn't really the model that I don't think she would have even intended it. I think she's, she was interviewed even later trying to explain too that, um, that it was, there's, there's, there almost needed to be like follow-up research and studies done too. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. And in fairness to her, I don't think it was ever Kubler-Ross's, uh, intention that this is going to be the vernacular that we use. And again, speaking to our kind of death denying culture, it was, all right, we've got something here. We got something that explains it. The five phases, it's pretty easy. They're all these different feelings. Uh, we're going to go with this. And this is what we're going to teach people when somebody dies. And literally there are, uh, like websites with therapist handouts that cover like different subjects. So, if you're kind of like a generalist therapist and you have someone in your practice that's dealing with a a grief and loss issue, you'll, you'll go, you'll look into the little grief and loss section and what's there, the five phases of grief and, and a little handout and stuff that you, you, you give the person to sort of, okay, well, what phase do you think you're in now? And, and all this, and it's pretty amazing. But again, I think it speaks to the point of, we were, as a culture, pretty quick to settle on the first thing that came along that sounded like, because we just don't like talking about it. Very avoidant. Absolutely. I have a, a client that I'm working with that I saw you know, years ago, and now her husband died suddenly. So I, I started seeing her again after this loss that she's had. And she is literally asking me, um, so what, like a ver- what do I need to do to not feel this way that that avoidance piece of it this and and because she's never really worked through other loss that she's had in her life this intensity that she's feeling with this sudden loss she just wants to be told a prescription let me do this this and this and then i could be done with all of this because the feelings she wants to avoid those feelings so much and and i think that really kind of captures how so many people feel about about what grief is like, that grief is this intense emotion and these ups and downs and these waves that kind of come and go and helping them kind of sit with what that pain and what those feelings and emotions are like and that that's what you have to go through. You must go through it. I I use the image of 
like a thick brick wall that you can't catapult like a pole vaulter over it. You literally have to get your little hammer and you chip and chip and chip through through that to get to the other side. And um, so it isn't anything to avoid at all. Yeah, similarly, in having those conversations with people, I often come to, if you feel uncomfortable and you're uncomfortable, if there's moments of anxiety, if there's moments of fear, if there's moments of real anger or real depression, and you find that you you feel as though you're not quite the same person that you were before, that's probably a good indicator that you're in the process and that you're experiencing the things you're supposed to be experiencing. I liken it to what they say about, say, going on antidepressants, that if you start an SSRI and you have like a lot of side effects in the early going, that's actually a really positive indicator that it's probably going to work for you. Um, I think same thing with grief. If you experience this level of intensity over a period of time, you're doing it correctly. You're experiencing the feelings and there will probably be relief at some point. It just takes, if we're doing it correctly and what is correctly, but if we're doing it in an authentic way and meaning that I'm not looking to self-medicate it, I'm not looking to avoid, I'm not pathologizing this and seeing this experience as something that is bad or wrong, but I'm allowing myself to go through it and utilizing the support around me, that ultimately there will be relief at some point. And whatever point that is, it's always going to take longer than you imagined, hoped, or thought that it would. A hundred percent. Right. I think people, you know, we, we want immediate gratification. Our, our society, our country, you know, individuals, we want to know kind of what's the end game here? What's the date? When can I put on my calendar that I'm not going to feel this way anymore? And uh, again, you know, as we've talked about, like, it's not that linear process. I, I keep a slinky in my office. So it's kind of up and down and in and out. And with kids, that's a good visual that helps describe grief that for a lot of people, they do think it's that one year mark that they're again, over it, like a cold, um, which is not the case, that it is something that lasts. And there's the anniversary reactions, there's I mean, there's so many issues that kind of come into play that you'll look at of how somebody, what their grief recovery process will look like, uh, what their support system has been that they have, if they don't have their age, what the circumstances were around their loss that they had. Was it sudden? Was it expected? Was there a lot of anticipatory grief work done? There's so many things. Um, and so for a lot of people, it, it's, and it's scary, you know, they, they don't want to think I'm going to feel this way for years, but we try to educate them and explain and support them that the way you're feeling right now isn't how you're going to feel exactly a year or even two years or three years because they're sitting in your office in that space to be able to start to do the work. It's the people that aren't really doing that, that are avoiding it or going to have a delayed grief reaction uh, because if they didn't deal with whatever was going on, it's just going to come out later in life. You, you got to work through it one way or the other, either in pay now or pay later, but you have to do the work. Irving Yalom wrote a book about uh, death anxiety. And this is a guy who really was, is, is very kind of like unafraid to take this subject on, the least popular subject. And he 
writes about uh, death anxiety and these existential crises around impermanence in all of his books. But the one that he wrote about death anxiety specifically, he called it Staring at the Sun. And he called it Staring at the Sun because you don't want to look at the sun too long, obviously. And so he likens the conversation around anticipatory death or the anticipation of death as staring at the sun because we all avoid it. We are uncomfortable to discuss. So I thought that was a good title. Yeah, I I love his work and uh, I really I really take a lot of those principles of existentialism. You know, people like if somebody will say, well, what a new prospective client well, what type of theory? What do you use? What's your model? And, you know, like many clinicians, we are somewhat eclectic, unless I guess you're a real diehard, like psychoanalyst. Um, but I talk about existentialism and, and that, um, you know, man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl. I, I studied when I was at, in grad school at Ohio State. I had, uh, this, this professor, I, I wonder if he's still there. Um, Jim Lance, he wrote an existential family therapy book and he really took a lot of the principles of existentialism and, and Victor Frankel's work and Yalom's work. And, um, and it's great because when you're aware of your own meaning and purpose, like to me, that's the crux of so much of the work that I do is meaning and purpose why are we here? What's it all really about? And when you can live your life in a meaningful, purposeful way, that is one of the things that helps flip a sense of depression that people may feel when they're in their darkest days. And whether it's how are they going to go on the rest of their life without their loved one? I, I make that such a part of our sessions together of how to achieve a sense of meaning and purpose. And uh, there are lots of ways to do that. So I, think that existential part, both from somebody who is in the dying process, which I guess we all are kind of a little bit every single day, but also for the bereaved that there's still there's so much about meaning and purpose and value in life. When we dig in to actually dealing with the work, doing the work with people who are struggling with unresolved grief and loss, there's a Yalom quote that comes to mind. It's one of my favorites. And he says, um, he says something. <laughs> he says, he, he says, in order to make peace with the dead, we must first make peace with the living. And I really think that that's kind of like an interesting statement. Because if you look at those folks that really sort of struggle with the complicated grief issues and people who have these prolonged reactions there's often something incomplete in the relationships. There's often some struggle in the relationship, some aspect that is like not resolved, you know, some, some theme that is incomplete, some what if, or I wish we had done this prior to the passing that remains incomplete for the person. And that's a lot of, as a clinician, I think the work that we're doing to help a struggling person move to the other side of this is help them kind of clean up those pieces that are unresolved or incomplete. Right. And thinking around the areas of guilt that they have and regret can be so deep within them of their own work. And if somebody's loved one dies from a medical situation, let's say, they want to find cause and effect. Well, there must be a reason that my husband's not here. He had 
bad treatment in the hospital, I'm going to blame the doctors. And they work through that. And often it has nothing to do with the medical care. It was whatever their health situation was. And, and you kind of journey with them through that process. I do a lot of pregnancy loss work too within the grief work. So if somebody experiences a miscarriage or like a stillbirth or some type of loss of a child like that, well, I must have done something. I shouldn't have eaten whatever I ate. I worked out too much that day. All these different things, They there's guilt there. And because they want to blame, they want to have an answer as to why it's happened because somehow they can't blame the baby. You know, they, they're not going to blame something like that. They're going to turn it inward and blame themselves. So we do a lot of work around guilt and regret and, and kind of releasing themselves from that because it just keeps you stuck. It just keeps you in like a space that isn't good for the long haul. That's for sure. You know, in um, the grief recovery method, they refer to unresolved grief as incomplete communication with the lost loved one. And so there's a lot of letter writing and things like this. Do stuff like that? I do. I do. You know, I think that so many things through life that people are experiencing, if they have like issues throughout their life, it is from unresolved grief. And I don't do a lot of addiction work. That's really not my jam at all. But I know that they have shown so much addiction is due to unresolved grief work that they never address. So they mask it and deal with, you know, kind of whatever their addiction is. So if I'm working with somebody and they're really experiencing some unresolved grief, this happens like disenfranchised grief, which is if somebody's former spouse in a divorce dies, like my, let's say my ex-husband died, but it wouldn't really be societally expected or where I should attend a funeral, let's say, but it's still a loss. This is not an actual thing. This is just an example. So maybe I would do that type of a thing, write a letter to to this person and, and share whatever I need to share to kind of do some of my grief work. So I think letter writing is a wonderful thing that helps people find a space because we're trying to contain it. We're trying to give tools that will help people move through that grief process. And I'm a real big believer in rituals. I do a lot of grief ritual work, courage doing grief rituals. So letter writing is definitely one. There's so many others. So I do think it's a helpful thing, a helpful tool to start to address. And because it might be loss that they never dealt with from years and years prior to. You see this sometimes with um, kids, if they had a parent die really young, but they didn't have the language of grief. They didn't understand when they were seven, eight, nine, that mom died or dad died. So now years later, they're sitting in your office and possibly they didn't, they weren't allowed to attend the funeral or if they did, they didn't really understand what was going on. So you can, you can address it through letter writing. It's a wonderful way to release. With the uh, substance use disorders, I still do it at Karen Renaissance. I, I go in once a week and I do the grief and loss specialty group. And what I discovered at the time when I was working residentially there as a primary therapist was that there were so many people, especially in the during the opioid epidemic, who had lost peers or parents who had lost children, so many to opioid overdose. And a lot of them were around when it happened. There were people who found people who had passed away, you know, all these different really unfortunate circumstances. And so if you think about the complexities of 
I've been self-medicating myself for years and years on with drugs and alcohol. I'm trying to get sober. And now that I'm sobering up, all these feelings are coming up. And I have more clear reference to this memory, this circumstance of this close personal friend that I had, that we were friends for years, and I was the one who shot him up, injected heroin, IV, into him for the first time. And now he's gone and I'm still here. And I have to try to find a way to reconcile that reality into my own recovery. And my preference would be, my ego defensive uh, preference would be to either avoid and not think about it or self-medicate that feeling because the guilt and the self-attribution is too powerful to tolerate. Can't tolerate. For sure. Oh my gosh. I mean, that is... Yeah, that and and when there is something that's so clearly defined like that in the pandemic that we've been experiencing, people are having that same kind of similar phenomena with COVID. They developed COVID, they infected their loved one, their loved one died from COVID. And I've seen this several times in my office. It's that same, it's guilt. It is my fault. How can you tell me it's not my fault? I got COVID and now, you know, my spouse or my parent or whomever is not here, even though we were trying to be safe or or whatever the circumstances were. So addressing that guilt and, and a thought that I had as you were talking with so many people during the opioid crisis, which I know was still an issue for sure, the issue of cumulative grief, because there's so many multiple friends, family members that know so many people. Um, so they're addre- they're dealing with so much grief of so many individuals, a multitude of individuals during this pandemic. People are experiencing that right now. There have been multiple times dealing with the Parkland tragedy and working with the families with the anniversary date coming up. I've had several coming back to me again with the anniversary date of the shooting. So this cumulative grief, 9-11, you know, we've had so many times in, in our in our society where there's been many, many people that have died that one person. So you're needing to really address so many different people with grief and in traumas. You see that so much more often, too. It's really tough with the opioid epidemic, too, and people who have lost family members to opioid overdose. I heard someone refer to it once as this isn't the casserole disease because there's so much stigma attached to it. So even among bereavement groups, folks impacted this way often feel a little bit a breed apart, that I don't quite fit into, you know, your loved one died of some medical cause that's sort of within the normal realm of uh, human experience. My son, daughter, husband, whomever died of a drug overdose. And what does that say about them as a person? And what does that say about me as a person? And I have to kind of reconcile all the stigma attached to it. Yeah, I'm thinking about parents that I worked with. And I would say in the last few months, whose son died just in this exact way. And I feel like the first part of the session was the parents almost having to like, tell me, share with me how amazing of a kid he was, how his life had so much meaning and so many things lined up that was about to happen in his life, that he was this incredible person. And I think just to speak to what you're saying of that stigma, that shame involved, that they almost, you know, on some level needed that normalization, but needed that validation as well, that 
We did the best that we could as parents. He was about to go to college. He had a vision and this happened. And so you're just, your sharing of that space with them, I think is so important is what, what we do. A lot of it is really sharing in the space of being in that, that they don't really have often outside. I've had that conversation with a number of parents. Something occurred to me as I, we were having the conversation. I'm thinking about it. I'm like, what these people really want to know is that I, they want to be clear that I know or that I could believe that they're actually really good parents. They want to know and validate that I see them and not as failed people and that that's going to be really important to them for us to move forward in any kind of way is that I understand that they're good parents and that their child was a good person and that this terrible tragedy happened to a good person and that there was not a moral defect on anyone's part that created this loss and that it's really important that that's clear for it because there's already so much self-judgment they cannot they can't get that from us Right. Exactly. It's, you know, we, we always talk about as clinicians that at least in my training back from day one of, of grad school is we are to be non-judgmental, And, and it's, it's so true when they're outside the door, outside of the space of our office or screen, if we're doing telehealth and they're, they, they have their own friends, they have their own family that might be sitting with judgment for a lot of different reasons. And I think they just, need that one person who is going to completely uh, give them that validation, that support, that that we are attending. We're really attending to them, to that they did everything right. They did every, no one's perfect, that, and, and, and allowing them to share the stories and life review and, and which is what I do a lot is people are, are sharing the stories of their loved one. You know, what was that person like? Tell me, bring the snapshot to life of, personality of a funny story, you know, letting them really share in that in those moments, because they're experiencing so much pain and sadness, and all the negative thoughts and feelings that when they can kind of move through some of that to life review and sharing of those incredible touch points, it helps them, you know, work through some of that grief too. A hundred percent. And I think to a lot of with this type of loss, most people in somebody's life are not going to know what to say to them around a loss like this. There's a lot of these comments that people make that are really just meant so that I could say something because I really just don't know what to say. Or, you know, all that he's in a better place now and all of these kinds of things that people say that may not be the best thing to say. Right. Often they don't know what to say and they're feeling uncomfortable. So they want to feel more comfortable. So they'll just say anything to make themselves feel better too. Like if, if somebody back to pregnancy loss for a moment, if somebody has the uh, experiences, the death of a baby, oh, you're young. You can just have another one. The idea of having to comfort somebody in their most difficult, sad space isn't a comfortable feeling for most people. So they will just give these kind of blanket statements. I have a, a list that I keep in a file that when I'm working with a family, we'll read through, like, share with me some of the things that people have said to you that has actually helped you feel better. And we'll, like, as a joke, we'll go, go through some of these things. And, uh, and they, yeah, I mean, it's completely for their own not feeling uncomfortable, too. I'll run through the same scenario. 
and for the same reason and some some other reasons as well because a lot of times in the absence of those communications when someone really doesn't know what to say and they say nothing at all or they make a one of those kind of characteristic statements that that people make i will ask the client what's your interpretation of that person's silence or that statement and often you will find there's some self-attribution of judgment that I'm doing this wrong, that I did something wrong, or they're not saying anything because there's nothing to say because there's a stigma, shame element to it. And I think to starting to look at those attributions of the stories that people are making up about themselves and their responsibility in this is as an important a part of it. You know, I think it was uh, Catherine Shear from the Center for Complicated Grief at, at Columbia University. Somebody's done some really incredible stuff mm-hmm. with this. Really, when I look at like a single person who has moved the paradigm in the correct direction and some of the work and the papers that she's put out and trainings and things, I, I think that that's, that's the one. This is really kind of like, to me, the right way to conceptualize this. And I hope that her work becomes more and more popular over time. She says that a lot of this kind of attributed responsibility uh, and guilt is really, it it arises out of attachment. It just arises out of a close relationship. It's part of if I'm a parent or a spouse of, or I'm talking about my parents and there's a feeling that because we're close, I care for you and provide you care in some tangible way. Like I do things to help you or nurture you. If that pa- person passes away, there's it's almost natural to have some guilt and saying, okay, I wasn't nurturing enough. There was something I should have been doing or could have been doing for that person that I didn't do. And that's why they've passed. I think it's almost like in some natural selection sort of way that favors that because if you have strong attachments to people and you really have like a strong sense of responsibility about my nurturing in these relationships, I'm going to feel some sense of responsibility when someone passes, even though that may lead to additional and even unnecessary suffering on my part. I think it's all part of the process. And I like the way that she frames it around attachment. It makes sense to me. Yeah, I I agree. And I think when we normalize that, that grief is really an expression of love for that attachment, that that's the goal. You know, like if you look at what's the difference between grief and mourning, kind of the inward process is grief, the inside work that is happening. Mourning is that outward expression, the tears or the journaling or the storytelling or whatever. The goal is many people grieve, but to try to work through the mourning process to be able to express that and that it is so much about the attachment. So when when people, what's the first thing that happens? I don't know if this happens with you in your office, but I know with me. If somebody starts crying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to. Well, the tears are an expression of that love, and that is the mourning, that is that expression of the attachment of their loved one. So that's where we, you know, first of all, I, I explained to them, 
this is the space to cry. And that is, you know, feel what you're feeling and, and release that. That's so important. I validate it. I encourage it and try to really help express to them that it's through those attachments. That's why back to with, with children, if we use those golden opportunities when kids are young for their first loss of a pet, say their, their dog dies and we can help give them that language of what that loss those feelings, that grief around the dog that died, that attachment toward that dog, those things are going to help them through their entire life as well. Yeah, no, that's good. That's a great way of teaching. I don't really do a lot of work with children. and I know that you do. And I admire your ability to do it. It must be difficult at times to, I mean, it's a real specialty to be able to navigate these kinds of losses with juvenile age people i i um it's really where i started when i started back in at my first hospice the first job that i had was i guess it was like a split position of school outreach coordinator running bereavement support groups in the schools and then doing work with our family focused grief program that we had at the hospice so that's really where it began for me so I've always enjoyed working with kids and I find it just, they can handle so much more than I think we give them credit for. And and I was so lucky to study with probably one of the best. His name's Alan Wolfelt. He's a really a child thanatologist out in Colorado. And when I worked at the hospice back in the 90s, I had the opportunity to fly out and to do training with him at his incredible, beautiful retreat center in Fort Collins, Colorado. And his whole philosophy is all about um, companioning with somebody on their journey of grief. So we're just a companion. We're just along their their walk with them. And he used to keep a like a old rundown Jeep, I think it was, that didn't drive anywhere. It was just kind of on his property. And he would sit with kids and pretend to drive the car. And just they would talk and share just in this kind of very natural, organic fashion. And I've really used that template of of being on the journey or companioning with somebody throughout their grief. And it helps, of course, you know, learning like some other fun things to do with, especially if it's little kids, some play oriented, you know, things that we can do. But but that's kind of how I look at it, you know, when I work with kids. No, that sounds like the right way to do it. The Jeep thing is pretty cool. Yeah, we don't really have that space in a <laughs> my off our liability. We'd have to sign our life away probably if we're going to drive with a kid in a car, which I do not do, obviously. Um, but I bet there's some virtual. Let's do that. Can we come up with some virtual reality and trade uh, trademark that, patent it, some VR? We said that's a whole great. We should stop talking about it. Somebody's going to steal our idea. Yeah, I don't really know how to make VR programs. No. <laughs> I'm just excited that microphones in here are working. It's as far as I, I think I'm going to get right now, technologically. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's being applied in other areas of mental health, particularly, I think, uh, PTSD and people who are coming back from uh, like combat trauma. They're doing a lot of stuff with VR. So I imagine it will probably have, I'm sure it already does have other applications in the space. So I'm definitely going to need to get my digital platform of my uh, practice management software together since I'm still in paper before the VR stuff comes out or I'm such a dinosaur. I'll really be in, in behind. Well, yeah, I mean, I, maybe there's something to like the 
in this kind of fast-moving technological world, uh, someone who still does it the old-school way, you know, the comfort in that, that that still exists. There's still paper and pencils and, you know, pens and things like this available to us. So we were talking earlier uh, before we started recording about the addition of persistent complex bereavement disorder or the attempted addition of it into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Psychiatric Disorders, the fifth edition. And it didn't quite make it as a diagnosis. It was relegated to the areas of future discussion, meaning they're going to talk about it later. This was a question I, this is something I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, you're uh, another grief specialist like myself. What are your thoughts about the idea of kind of a, a separate diagnosis for complicated grief that sort of falls outside of, say, the normal range of grief responses, that there's some category of grief and loss that falls outside of the regular range of experience. Right. So so these are conversations that they've been talking about for years. And my full disclosure that we talked about earlier, due to the fact of kind of my approach of how I how I look at grief work, I'm I'm not one to make things pathological, and which is why myself and insurance companies probably wouldn't get along because to label certain things or have to put a code, which many people need to do when you're going to see a, a mental health professional or a medical professional, you need a code in order to be receive a diagnosis to get paid. And so that's my disclosure kind of, you know, up front that I don't, I'm really not one that kind of looks at things in that, in that kind of a way from a, from a labeling standpoint. But in the world that we're in, we have to because people, they want to try to develop some framework of understanding. And that's what this, this book is really all about is a framework of understanding and uh, kind of categorizing. So uh, even, even back when I had back in the nineties, when with my first hospice job, we always had to do a grief assessment for every single person that died on the hospice program. When we worked with the family, the very first thing is, is this a normal quote, air quote, a normal grief reaction or complicated grief reaction. So even before this was a conversation of placing it in the DSM, we were talking about that. What are kind of the circumstances around normal grief? Was this somebody's 90-year-old parent that had had a nice long life that was dying from some type of COPD, you know, pulmonary issue or heart issue or cancer and whatever it was? And so their grief experience was one of having lots of opportunity to say their goodbyes. They had a great support system. They weren't feeling guilt. They weren't having difficulty eating, difficulty sleeping, all the things we assessed. So we would code it back then, normal grief or not. The, those who it looked, they they had the outcome from our little survey, the, the little scale that we had to do, more of complicated grief. Then they had a referral to see a grief counselor, which was me. I thank my mentor Myra, if you are listening, Myra Clark, oh my gosh, if it weren't for her, I would not be sitting in here doing this right now, taking a chance on a graduate student uh, to do this type of work, because what did I know? I was just working in retail. But anyway, that's for another conversation. So I would receive these referrals with a lot of great mentorship and, and supervision from Myra, which she was amazing. She's retired now, determined that they were having more of a complicated grief reaction. So 
so again, this has been kind of going on for a long time and, and they were looking at some different language, how to place it into the DSM. So now they've come up with this other language now where they're at right now. And, and every time it is getting tabled for further discussion. And I, you know, I'd love to kind of pick the brain of, of the advisory board who's sitting down to really kind of discuss that because I do believe that there's a place for that for sure as long as we're not looking at it that there's something wrong with them that we we're all going to go through some type of a grief experience i just worry that if a specific labels being used that it it really can impact their their future career opportunities their their future um reimbursement with whatever they they need kind of that whole other that whole other path that they go down or feeling like that there's something wrong with them like schizophrenia because we're talking about labeling in the DSM where bipolar disorder is and schizoaffective disorder disorders so that's that's kind of you know a little bit of my how I feel about it but I do think that there's typical normal grief process and then something over here where we need to make sure that they're seeing a grief therapy specialist who can really assist them, which is what you and I do all the time. I think you've done a, a good job in kind of bringing attention to both sides. That one, we don't want to pathologize the experience of grief and loss. It is within the normal range of experiences that people have. And there are for sure outliers people who are experiencing grief and loss and that's usually associated with like some form of an extreme circumstance so we don't want to pathologize that on the other side it creates an opportunity for us as a an avoidance society that doesn't you know like you said death denying society that avoids looking at this topic to lean in a little bit more with a diagnostic label, and maybe sometimes it's what it takes to kind of now view this through a trauma-informed lens of that these are actually traumatic experiences that people have uh, when someone dies from sudden loss or when somebody is in hospice care for a prolonged period of time and you're participating in something like that with a, a loved one and all of these different uh, these different circumstances that are more correlated with complicated grief. And again, uh, Catherine Shear, you know, in research, she kind of lays these out. Like there's a list of these circumstances that are more correlated with these complicated grief reactions. And I like that it's that way because if, you hate to see something pathologized just for the sake of making it a pathology. You want there to be something uh, remedial and healing in the process that the intent of it is to create better healing for people. And so when you give it over to someone like this, like someone like Catherine Shear and, you know, the the Institute for Complicated Grief, is that what it's the Institute? I think so. I think so. I heard her speak I think at a ADEC conference or something a long time ago, Teresa Rando, also somebody else who's done back in the day, a lot of work around complicated grief. I think that's her institute. At Columbia University, when you think about somebody like that and their intent, you know, and, and being able to kind of make the classification there, it's all pointing clinicians, all pointing people like you and me 
in the direction of just being more effective at helping people. That brings me comfort as opposed to this other thing that we're talking about, about we're slapping another label on this experience and adding potentially insult to injury for someone that's going through something that's difficult enough. I think also, especially since we, we are kind of our society is a bit of a medical model society that the one good thing, if it does happen, that could come from it, that potential somebody's going to see their primary care doctor, because that's usually what will happen for a lot of people. They'll go see their doctor. They're not feeling right. That maybe the doctor, if they're, they're savvy enough or aware enough and know that this is, you know, something that really needs to be treated because it is this diagnosis, they may be more apt to offer an appropriate referral to a specialist because they see this medical model. They see this diagnosis. Yes, I believe doctor so-and-so talking to patient so-and-so. I believe that you have this, what we're looking at pervasive, you know, situation, this, this complicated grief reaction. I think you need to go see a specialist. So maybe it would help make things a little bit more for the masses, kind of globalize it a bit, which that can only be really good. And that would be the thing, the primary care physician. And we're in the place where you'd want to see that the most because of this this massive elderly population here. Uh, you know, so primary care physicians are dealing with elderly people who are losing spouses and things like this. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a really good point. A good way to think of it, too. Again, that it makes healing and help and treatment available to more people because now we have sort of a target with a like a label. It'll be interesting to see kind of what happens when they discuss it later, whenever that later is going to be. I wonder what else is on the list of further discussions. I know. What are they taking out? It's always being modified anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Always being modified for the purpose of something. Okay. So I think we've done a really good job of hitting a lot of the the highlights here. I I tell you, I thank you so much for coming in and really what I imagined some of the things that we would cover and what I hoped we could talk about on this level. And I feel like we did, which is fantastic. Awesome. Oh my gosh. I've enjoyed it so much. You're very easy to talk with anyway. I'm sure your clients feel that, but I've always enjoyed our conversations outside of the space. So Uh, I look forward to more opportunities and I feel so honored to have been part of something so special like this. So I thank you so much. Again, I appreciate it. And, you know, welcome to the Good Counsel Podcast family, Karen. This went really well. And my belief is that probably this conversation will be a popular one. I think this is something that that people want to know more about. And so, um, you know, maybe we'll, we'll do it again. Anytime. We'd love to come back. Thank you for joining.